This is Tech News for MBAs. I'm Professor Paul Canetti. It is March 5th, 2021. If this is your first time tuning in to Tech News for MBAs, my name is Paul Canetti, and basically this is, as you probably guessed, a podcast about tech headlines. But unlike other tech shows that either are particularly rudimentary, like just the headline and that's it, or are too deep divey, sort of assuming that you already know a lot about tech, this show is really aimed at people that are smart and capable and business-minded, but maybe just don't know that much about tech or aren't following tech as closely as maybe you want to be. It was born out of my classroom at Columbia Business School, where we open every class talking about the headlines from the last week in tech, and my realization that even though they're all of these amazingly smart people in my classroom coming from a diverse set of professional backgrounds, the majority of my students say that they really don't keep up with tech news as well as they wish they did. And so this podcast is aimed at businessy people who want to know more about what's going on in the world of tech. And of course, our definition of tech continues to expand because every industry is already or is going to be deeply affected by the power of technology, and really we mean internet technology, as it continues to expand out from the middle and sort of engulf every other industry. I have a simple ask this week and every week, which is to subscribe to this podcast, leave a rating and or a review, and tell a friend. The easiest thing you can do right now is just send a text message like, hey, listen to this podcast, you might like it too. Okay, let's get into the headlines. Fintech company Square is set to acquire Jay-Z's music service, Tidal. Well, I honestly didn't see this one coming. There's actually a lot under the hood here to examine. So first of all, this music service, Tidal, was launched a few years ago, and the intention was to create a competitor to Spotify and Apple Music that was artist-owned and really aimed at creating an artist-centric music service. It is largely considered to have been a commercial failure as it never really got the sort of traction it needed to compete in a serious way. But with startups that are backed by people like Jay-Z, they're sort of too big to fail. It's not like they're just going to close up shop, although we did see actually something like that happen with Quibi last year. Separately, if you look at Square, which, as a reminder, is one of the two companies that founder and CEO Jack Dorsey runs, Square is a payments company that helps small businesses. You know, if you've been at a coffee shop and swiped your credit card through a little Square reader, but also Square does online payments. They have the Cash App, which is sort of like a Venmo type competitor. And just earlier this week, what probably would have been its own headline for this show is that Square has registered with the U.S. government as an FDIC-backed bank. So Square is now actually going to become a proper bank. And if you layer all of these pieces together, what you get is really a new area for Square to move into, which is the creator economy. As a macro trend, we've seen a lot happening with creators and artists 
with solutions that we've discussed on this show, like Substack, where you can sell a newsletter subscription. Super follows the upcoming Twitter feature where you can have people subscribe to get exclusive content from you on Twitter. NFTs, which we got into last week, where artists and musicians are selling unique digital copies of their work. I would also throw into the mix Taylor Swift re-recording all of her old albums and making a variety of public statements about how the artist should really own their own work. So enter this partnership between Square and Tidal, where all of a sudden Square is controlling this music service, but I think more it's about really putting a stake in the ground as far as becoming the place where artists and creators manage their online finances and commerce. You have a bank account with Square. You sell your work with Square. Jack Dorsey is also very bullish on cryptocurrencies. So I could see NFTs being a big part of this story down the road. And so this acquisition is going to be for about $300 million in a mix of cash and stock in Square, which is a public traded company. But the other interesting footnote here is that Jay-Z is actually joining the board of directors of Square. And so not only will Jay-Z, I'm sure, stay involved in Tidal as it now becomes part of the parent company, Square, but Jay-Z will start to exert influence over the rest of Square in general. And I think particularly with its consumer-facing cash app, there's a bit of a mirroring here between Apple's acquisition of Beats a few years ago where it's not only about the music, but also about introducing personality and culture into the products that it offers. To me, besides being an amazing business person, which Jay-Z obviously has proved himself to be, he also is a tastemaker. And typically, tech companies don't operate from that same sort of mindset as the mindset of an artist or creator or tastemaker, almost more like a fashion designer. I think there are a lot of interesting things that will come of this deal. And I think for Title and its shareholders, this is probably a decent outcome. And for Square, it's a pretty good deal. This is just not that much money as far as a company like Square goes. And so I'm really curious to see where this nets out. But I think it's a really exciting development and an interesting one. And I especially love the element of surprise that no one was sort of buzzing or talking about this possibility. It wasn't really rumored from what I could tell. It just dropped like a great music single. A new law in Virginia gives consumers the ability to opt out of having their data tracked for advertising purposes. This is the latest in a long string of new legislation in the United States and around the world aimed at user privacy ad tracking, and the like. In tandem, Google announced this week that they are not going to be pursuing any sort of alternative to third-party cookies, which really is all part of the same story. Google's browser Chrome, Apple's Safari, and others have started to phase out the use of third-party cookies. Cookies is a really old technology that basically enables a website to drop something onto your computer, a small file, that then when you go to a different website, that first cookie can sort of know what you're doing on the second website, even if the two websites are owned by two different companies. And so for companies like Facebook or Google and plenty of other companies you've never heard of, they are basically tracking you all over the web and using that information for their own purposes. 
So for instance, if Facebook knows that you went to the Gap's website and you were shopping for a sweatshirt or that you were on Warby Parker looking at a pair of sunglasses, now Facebook might want to show you an ad about sweatshirts or sunglasses. And in fact, the Gap and Warby Parker might want Facebook to know that so that they can show you specifically Gap ads and Warby Parker ads. By cutting off third-party cookies, in theory, the user is protected, but this does not preclude companies from using first-party data. So, of course, Facebook can continue to track the things you do on Facebook or other Facebook properties using cookies and other sorts of technology, and the same for Google. So Google can use its own data about what you've searched for or what your email says or what you've written in a document, anything on a Google property. There are entire industries built on third-party cookie data sharing, and so there's going to be a big upset. But the other consequence of this is that whoever has the strongest first-party data now really has a huge advantage. You could have imagined a new company that did not have a lot of first-party data being able to leverage third-party data in order to compete with a big incumbent like Facebook or Google. But now, if you were starting a new startup, there's basically no way that you could get your first-party data to be as good as their first-party data. There's no ability for lots of small players to band together in this scenario. And so what we might end up with is just a further lock-in of these big incumbent players, particularly in the advertising market where targeting based on user activity is really, really important. I don't want to pay to place a sweatshirt ad in front of someone that has never expressed interest in a sweatshirt. Whereas if I know that I can show sweatshirt ads to people that like to shop for sweatshirts, I have a much better chance at them actually purchasing a sweatshirt as a result of me paying for that ad. And so I'm going to want to spend my money as an advertiser with the companies that can guarantee me the best result. Tech regulations are typically aimed at preserving consumer privacy and at creating more competition. But some of these changes might actually end up having the opposite effect. We've got some news from Instagram and from Netflix coming up after the break. But first, a 15-second message from our sponsor, Bounce House. Bounce House helps you sell one-on-one -on -one sessions and group classes online. Built for one-person businesses like personal trainers, yoga instructors, and nutritionists. Bounce House is giving away a 1,000 free licenses to those affected by the pandemic. Go to bounce.house to learn more. That's bounce.house. Bounce House. Sell your service online. Welcome back. It's time for... This week's random startup you never heard of is Kumo Space. That's spelled K-U-M-O-S-P-A-C-E. Kumo Space is a new kind of video conferencing that simulates a physical room. And so it's a really interesting idea, but basically you create almost like a virtual office or any sort of space, and then you can quote unquote walk around that space on video and so if I'm, you know, sitting on the couch in the corner of this virtual space and you walk over to me in Kumo space, you could talk to me, but then you could walk away from me. I stay there on the couch and you go and stop by, you know, somebody's desk to chit chat with them uh, the way you would in an office. If you have a scheduled meeting with certain individual people, then probably something like Zoom is still going to do the trick. But if you want to have a more ambient and spontaneous video conferencing 
experience, Kumo Space really is bringing something unique to the mix. Definitely check it out. It's kumospace.com. Link is in the show notes as well. And that was this week's random startup you've never heard of. Netflix is launching a new feature called First Laughs to compete with TikTok. You probably don't think about Netflix and TikTok as being direct competitors, but TikTok was explicitly named by Netflix as a competitor. And what they're really competing for is your attention. In the attention economy, there is a fixed resource and it is the time in the day. Each user only has so many hours and minutes to spend and where you choose to spend it is of utmost importance to these sorts of companies. Particularly with TikTok, which is a visual medium that also has audio, you really can't be using TikTok and Netflix at the same time. So in this zero-sum game, Netflix is deciding to compete directly with what is essentially a TikTok clone. First Laughs is a new tab in the Netflix app available on your phone. Now, you can check Netflix on your phone. You might not have it yet because they are tearing out this launch. Not every user has it yet. But basically, using First Laughs feels a lot like using TikTok, except that every clip is a one-liner from a Netflix comedy special. So you see a clip from Dave Chappelle, you go to the next one, you see one from Jerry Seinfeld, you go to the next one, you see one from Ali Wong. And just like TikTok, it's pretty addicting, and you end up watching a lot of clips all in a row. It's just a new way to consume Netflix. I think this is really, really cool and interesting to see. The Netflix mobile apps are really just sort of a clone of what you would see on your smart TV device. You know, a grid of videos that you can watch an episode of a show or a movie. But I think taking the mobile first format seriously and realizing that maybe people want to watch content differently on their phones... This is a theme that I've been exploring myself now for over a decade, and I think this move by Netflix is really neat. It's also a good reminder that the TikTok format is not protected in any way, much like we saw with the Stories format originally conceived by Snapchat, but now available pretty much everywhere, or the Newsfeed, which was credited to Facebook, but of course is now part of every app. The TikTok format itself is portable. Anybody can recreate it. What really matters is what are the videos that are playing. And Netflix has a lot of great content that now they can repackage into this new format. Instagram is considering removing public like counts. This week, Instagram was testing a new feature or I guess a lack of feature. I'm not sure what you call it when you take a feature away. But basically, they are hiding the like count from the public feed, meaning that if you post a picture or a video on Instagram, you, the user that posted it, could still see how many likes it got. But everyone else that follows you would not be able to see how many likes it has received. This is something that Instagram and Instagram CEO Adam Mosseri have talked about publicly in the past as something that they wanted to explore. What are the potential negative implications of people competing for likes, especially when you think about teenagers and bullying? You post something and nobody likes it, or you post something and someone else posts something and they get more likes than you get. It might seem silly to think about, but for a lot of these kids, it's a serious issue and in some cases leads to depression or even suicide. What these big tech platforms will often do is a limited test where they will try out a new feature or change on a small subset of users. 
Apparently, in an error, Instagram ended up releasing this to a very large number of users, so a whole lot of people lost their like counts. Instagram has since restored those like counts to most of those users. They did intend to do a test. They just didn't want for it to be that widespread. And there were a lot of mixed reviews to this change. Of course, there was a lot of outrage. How could you do this to me? That kind of thing, as you would expect. But a lot of people, including a lot of major influencers on the platform, said this is actually a really good thing. We will see where this change nets out and if they decide to actually implement it to all of their users. And remember, Instagram is owned by Facebook. So could this change end up happening on Facebook proper as well? But, you know, the idea of the like button, when that was first added to Facebook and, of course, became the inspiration for similar buttons on almost every social service, I don't think they really could have considered all of the possible downstream effects that that would have societally and psychologically. But I admire Instagram for being willing to mess around with one of their most iconic features. And something that's cool about the world of tech in general is that nothing should be held sacred. It's a moving and evolving thing. So how do we tie together the various events from this last week in tech? Well, I think there is a bit of a secondary wave happening here of sort of undoing things from the first wave of the Internet. And so we had cookies that could track users across the Web and entire business models based on that tracking. And now there's a bit of a backtracking happening there. Similarly, social apps like Instagram were built on like counts, but now they're thinking, hmm, there might be some negative effects to that. Let's sort of walk it back. And even with Title and Square, rethinking sort of the fundamentals of authorship and ownership and intellectual property. The internet takes big swings, and sometimes when things work, they work, but there are a lot of unintended consequences or side effects as a result. And then you need to sort of go back and whittle it down a bit so that you keep the good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff. But as we're seeing, there are then ripple effects of those changes, and then you need other changes, and then ripple effects of those changes, and so on and so forth. So it's not so simple. And a lot of times the measures we take to improve things actually end up with other unintended consequences. I have a simple request this week and every week. Subscribe, review, and tell a friend. I'm Professor Paul Canetti. I'll see you next week for more tech news for MBAs.